Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And I guess we'll call this episode 356. 355 being the lost Demogorgon episode, and 354 being the vegetable lamb. And so I'd like to quickly take care of some Facebook likes before we dig in. So... Ronaldo Aquino, like the Weekend Out Facebook page. Uh, Claudette Biver, I hope that's how you pronounce it. Uh, she liked she liked a link. That, oh, and she also followed the show. Oh, thank you. Okay, Dan Danielle Noonan liked the Weekend Out podcast, and Mike Montague liked the Weekend Out podcast. Okay, thanks everyone. It is greatly appreciated. And I just caught myself. I think maybe that should have been Daniel Noonan, not Danielle. Just wanted to take care of that. One less correction I'll have to make next week. Uh, Apologies if I got your name wrong, and uh, thanks very much for the like. Okay. And there was something else I wanted to take care of before we move on to the news stories, etc. And I'll try not to dwell here for too long, because uh, I know listening to a podcaster talk about um, their technical woes, etc., et can be uh, probably proved to be quite boring or tedious. But the last two episodes were really kind of plagued by technical snags. And I figured I'd just, you know, talk about it because it would probably be cathartic for me. And uh, in case any of you guys noticed the... Uh, the the snags in question and wondered what was going on. So that vegetable lamb episode, I think I had to uh, upload that like three times. And fortunately, there's this uh, feature with Podbean, you know, which is kind of the middleman uh, service I use to deliver the audio version of the podcast to you guys. Um, it's just a place that kind of hosts your RSS feed, etc. Um and if you change the name of a you know a corrected file to exact to mirror exactly what you named the original file, you can upload the new revised uh, version of the of the file or episode, and it, it will actually just replace the old one and won't co- in theory won't cause you to lose any downloads or uh, or views or whatever. So I uploaded that vegetable lamb episode to Podbean. And I remember I had this real kind of uh, almost like an existential crisis during uh, making that episode. Uh, maybe that's a bit hyperbolic or, or whatever. Uh, or maybe not. We'll see. And this is something that happens to me with almost every documentary episode I do. It's I've kind of made it into an ongoing joke, you know, self-deprecatingly. But I'll find, uh, you know, a subject I really find interesting. Maybe it's something I've really, you know, long been interested in, but never got around to making an episode about it. Or maybe it's something that I've just recently found out about, and it's really kind of captivated my imagination. And, I, you know, I just want to kind of learn as much as I can about it and then share what I know about the topic with you guys. And that was the case with that tartar lamb or vegetable lamb uh, episode. As I explained at the beginning of that uh, that episode or that mini documentary episode, 
I, you know, just happened upon this subject while researching something else. I had never heard about it, but it was so weird and strange uh, and kind of obscure that I really wanted to turn it into a mini documentary episode. And no matter how many times I go through this process, I never learn. I just keep repeating it. I'll find a, you know, a little subject that interests me. And I'm like, oh, Easy breezy, man. I never say easy breezy in my everyday life. What the, what the hell is that? Anyway, you know, I'll think, oh, I can knock this out. No problem, man. You know what I mean? And to kind of uh, give you some insight into how the sausage is made, um, if it's a subject that I'm already familiar with, but I want to refresh myself on it, you know, I'll watch old documentaries that I've seen in the past about the subject. I'll research the subject online. If I have any, you know, physical paper books around um, that uh, have something to do with the topic, I'll go through those as well. And then also, I will go to Wikipedia, but I don't use Wikipedia as a main source. What I'll usually do is sometimes you can kind of just start to put together the bare bones or outline, uh, you know, by referring to Wikipedia. But then I'll always end up trying to double check what Wikipedia say. I've actually found that Wikipedia is pretty damn trustworthy. I know people always kind of thumb their noses at it and kind of, you know, scoff at the idea. And I get why some people are kind of distrustful or, you know, lack confidence in the platform because it is kind of scary, you know, if you're someone who values the truth and, you know, it does give you pause when you know it's this online encyclopedia that's constantly open to, you know, editing by who knows who, you know? So I totally get that. But I find by, you know, from personal experience that more often than not, the, um, the information is actually accurate and uh, it, it proves to be a trustworthy source. But even maybe part of it has to do with uh, when I was going back to school for design, it's so bad. It's like I'm actually embarrassed to admit it, but I've, I've told this story a number of times on, uh, on the show. I had this, uh, one of my design teachers, this guy was really, I'm trying to, I don't know, he kind of reminded me of uh, a Stephen Molyneux, Molyneux, Malamute type of guy. I don't know. It's just this like kind of stern, kind of conceited, balding, middle-aged gentleman. And yeah, he could he could be really kind of uh, harsh or whatever. And this is how naive I was when I went back to school and I was new to doing online research. I was new to Wikipedia. I actually quote would quote Wiki, or list uh, Wikipedia as a as a source, you know. And I remember one time he just he wrote this note that said something about how he appreciated my honesty. <laughs> and I yeah we know what he was trying to say. He's, this is a bullshit source, but thanks for uh you know being so naive as to admit that you uh resorted to using Wikipedia and citing Wikipedia. But in a way, I'm actually glad he did that because I think it's better to be corrected than to keep making the you know same mistake going forward. You know what I mean? But yeah, that guy was definitely a piece of work. And he really did remind me a lot in retrospect of uh, Stefan Molyneux or how, however you pronounce his name. Um, like I said, he was kind of stern, kind of smug, conceited, even physically. He, like, he was a tall, kind of thin guy with, you know, 
male pattern baldness, but you know the remaining hair sh- uh, shaved really close to the to the skull or whatever. Well, maybe skull is the wrong term. I just pictured someone using like a deli slicer to uh, to shave their head, some kind of weird Hellraiser type of thing. But uh, you know what I mean. And I remember there was this kind of mutiny on the bounty moment <laughs> in this guy's class. And of course, he was kind of like the Captain Bly or whatever. Um, the kind of too stern a leader or whatever. And the, the people eventually, uh, you know, mutiny. Um, it was very weird because, like I told you, I, I had to provide citations. And you know, this was a design course. But oddly enough, he had us writing research papers. And uh, usually that wasn't the case with the uh, the design courses I took. Um, most of the design courses I took were meant to just kind of prepare you and give you the tools that you'd need to be a designer out in the real world. Like some of the classes I took were like, I, I took uh, say intro to computer graphics one and two. Th- those taught you like how to use, um, this is how long ago it was. They, they had us using Quark Express. And if you know anything about design, that, that used to be like the leading page layout program that professional designers used. Uh, and then this happened uh, while I was still going for my design degree. At some point, uh, Adobe came out with InDesign, their own page layout program, and that kind of outpaced and eclipsed uh, Quark Express. But yeah, so we learned how to use things like Adobe Illustrator, Quark, InDesign. I took electronic imaging that taught us how to use Photoshop. Um, Took other classes that taught you how to, you know, do package design and create mock-ups and stuff. Yeah, but he had us write a paper on the history of graphic design, I believe. And uh, maybe it was his fault. Maybe he kind of led us in the wrong direction. But a bunch of us basically wrote papers on the history of art, you know, starting with uh, cave paintings onward. But in fairness, maybe, you know, just a brief kind of history of that kind of thing. And then focusing on the development of uh, the modern field of graphic design. But he wasn't happy with anyone's papers and basically tried to take the whole class to task for, you know, not following directions or whatever. Um, And there really was this kind of mutiny on the bounty thing. I remember there was one kid, just a good kind of salt-of-the-earth kid, baseball hat. I think he he did some kind of manual work as his day job. And he was like a quiet kid. And he got pissed. And he was like, he took an angry tone with the teacher. You know, totally turned the filter off, swearing or whatever. But it wasn't like just like an angry over-the-top rant. He was basically just expressing his frustration, saying, you know, I thought this is what you want us to do based on whatever. And other people were like um, speaking up about how, yeah, that was the impression they got too, you know. And he kind of, he looked like he wasn't quite sure how to handle the the situation, you know. <laughs> but it was funny. And, and there was a, a couple of weird moments between me and him specifically where I remember uh, there was, I could feel like his eyes on me. There was this girl who would, you know, sit next to me. And I don't think I was necessarily flirting with her. Uh, maybe I was on some level, but I was trying to pay her a compliment. 
she got a new tattoo and uh it was on the back of her neck i'm like oh that's a, that's a cool tattoo you know and also i feel like these eyes burning on me i look over my shoulder and he's seated behind us and he was like was in the middle of writing or something and he just you know was holding the pencil like he stopped what he was doing and just you know, burning a gaze right into me like he was pissed that I was daring to do anything kind of uh, social or, you know, attempting any kind of social interaction or whatever. And there was another time when, you know, for like my heavy duty art class, like there was some classes where we um, were engaging in like a physical medium, like painting or drawing or something. So I had a big like, you know, an, an art a uh, supply box that looked like a tackle box, kind of with all s- sort of uh, folding trays, and I had my um, my like uh, charcoal pencils, my paint brushes, uh, you know, all that type of stuff in there. And but there were times where I didn't need the whole case, so I would just carry around like a little transparent plastic uh, pencil case, like maybe a kid would take the school, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like pink with Barney the dinosaur on it or something. It was just a transparent thing I bought from like Staples or whatever. And uh, inside it, I had like my artist pencils, maybe a couple of brushes, some pens and pencils for taking notes and stuff. And I just like, he paused, I could feel once again, like he was paused and he was looking down at my desk and his eyes were directly on this pencil case. And he just held his gaze there like he was kind of disapproving or, or, you know, was like trying to think why the hell did this guy bring this, bring a pencil case to class? You know, was he a little kid? But there was was weird stuff like that. Most of my art uh, professors or whatever were really cool. Um, Just uh, laid back people that wanted to, you know, down to earth people that just want to impart their knowledge of the design field onto students who are serious about wanting to become designers themselves. And they would, you know, have you do exercises and projects that made sense, try to teach you real world skills. There's a couple of other teachers that were a little, you know, weird or off too. But yeah, I always remember that guy. It's strange. And so, yeah, I said I wasn't going to dwell long on these uh, editing snags or whatever. Uh, but I guess in a way, I didn't. I spent more time talking about, you know, conveying personal anecdotes than I did actually talking about the uh, the snags I encountered. But anyway, I remember what led to all this. I got off on digression about Wikipedia and that went into this anecdote about uh, citing Wikipedia as a source in school. Um But yeah, basically I was saying, I don't think there's anything wrong with using Wikipedia as like a jump off or starting point. You know, it can kind of get a brief idea of what, you know, maybe you'd want an outline of the subject to be. And, but then I, I think it's good to always double check the citations. And if something sounds a little off to you or you're not certain, you know, you should do your own research and uh, make sure Wikipedia is not leading you astray. But yeah, usually when I do a a topic, yeah, it's like a combination of things. I'll follow citations from Wikipedia. I'll research the the topic myself online, double check things. revisit old documentaries I've, you know, watched in the past on whatever the topic happens to be. But yeah, I was actually surprised by um, 
That, uh, I mean, I usually don't get a lot of views on YouTube. There are some kind of outliers or exceptions. You know, there's like my Saint pa my documentary on St. Patrick, my Baphomet documentary. Uh, I think the documentary I did on Aleister Crowley did uh, fairly well. But my average, just, you know, your standard... Uh, I say standard weird, <laughs> you know, my kind of standard uh, Week in Doubt episodes or whatever, where I cover um, eclectic news stories or whatever. Those usually, they don't do great view-wise. Um, but for some reason, that Vegetable Lamb documentary really kind of underperformed. I think as of now, it only has like 17 views. I wonder if part of it has to do with, and, and you know, I'm trying to keep it real, not uh, be in denial here. Because um, like I said, I think my standard episodes, really, they usually don't get many views. But uh, I've noticed kind of like, you know, ooh, the, the spooky YouTube algorithm, algorithm everyone blames for everything. But I think there's truth in that. And I've heard other people complain about that, both content creators and, you know, fans of content creators kind of complaining that um, that the content from their preferred creators isn't showing up in their, you know, recommendations or whatever on uh, on YouTube. Um, but yeah, and I remember half joking to myself that I wonder if uh, people saw the thumbnail and the title, you know, the thumbnail had like, uh, I, I kind of just quickly threw something together in Photoshop. It was, you know, like an old woodcut or whatever, uh, an old image of the Tartar lamb. And there was a fork with like salad on it in front of it. And of course the, the name had uh, vegetable right in the title. And uh, I've been talking and I'm very self-conscious about it. I know recently I've been talking about how I've been trying to phase animal products out of my diet, but at the same time, I'm not trying to beat people over the head or guilt them if they're, uh, you know, still eating meat or whatever. And I'm trying to assure people this isn't becoming a vegan <laughs> channel. I was almost half jokingly, you know, I doubt this has anything to do with it, but wondering to myself if people saw like vegetable in a fork with salad on it and they thought it was me pushing some kind of vegan content or something when it was actually just like a little documentary on this really weird uh, historical concept or whatever. I can't believe this. Now we're about 18 minutes in and I still haven't even touched on the specific uh, snags or whatever or, you know, technical errors. But when I sit down to record an episode, I use GarageBand, you know, which is that uh, that Apple um, audio program that comes with every Mac or whatever, you know. And I was so picky originally about finding the right vocal settings, uh, that once I finally, you know, got the desired sound, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to back off. I don't want to have to go through this whole process every time I want to record. I basically started with, uh, there's like a, a default setting or I don't know if you call it a filter or whatever it is, um, or preset. I have no idea, but, <laughs> and, I, and I was a singer in a band for years. As I like to say, I think technically I'm still in a band. We just haven't practiced in years. Uh, so you think I would know more about, uh, audio recording, but anyway, uh, this kind of default setting called male narrator. And I just really kind of tweaked and honed that till I got it to sound good and where there wasn't, you know, any annoying echo or anything. And, and that 
what I do is I kind of use, um, you know, older episodes as templates so I don't have to redo, you know, the kind of custom uh, vocal setting all over again every time. So I'll just open up an old episode and I'll delete the existing audio track and just start recording from there, you know. But the, <laughs> the hang up, though, is that um, if you mute a track instead of deleting it, Whatever, you know, muted audio, bit of audio you have there, if it occurs down the road beyond the length of the new episode you're recording, that will be factored in to uh, the length of the file. And so to give you a specific example, that Vegetable Lamb documentary, that was fairly short, maybe like 15 minutes long. And as I always say, those documentary episodes, despite taking more time to create due to all the research, you know, writing a script or whatever, uh, they always end up being the shortest. Because once everything's condensed down to a nice, polished, concise script, the only thing left to do is sit down and read it. And, you know, because there's no ums and ahs and because you're not thinking out loud while you go, you're just reading a script, they end up being pretty short. Um... And so, unfortunately, the video, the uh, the old show I was using as a template was, you know, one of my, like this, one of my rambling unscripted episodes. And it was probably something like 50 minutes in length. And at the very end of it was a little bit of outro music, bumper music or whatever, that was muted. So even though it was muted, it still got figured into the length of the uh, Tartar Lamb episode. So, like... If you listen to the the original upload of that, um, you know, the episode may have stopped at like 15 minutes in after I, you know, finished reading the script, but there was probably dead air that went on for like another uh, 45 minutes or whatever. So when I recognized that, I went in, edited out, edited out that little muted bit of outro music and uh, re-uploaded it. And then what happened next was, you know, as I usually do, I imported the audio into iMovie so I could start adding visuals, you know, for the YouTube version. And this has happened before. You know, I listen back to the to the audio so I can place the proper visuals where they should go, you know, to uh, to complement whatever it is, you know, I'm talking about or whatever. And I was listening back to a bit of the script where I was talking about Alexander the Great and his generals and how supposedly two men who served under him had commented on, you know, trees in the ancient world, in India specifically, that seemed to grow wool. You know what I mean? And I've mentioned, I think recently on an episode, I mentioned how I used to be really into Alexander the Great, and I even read the uh, the campaigns of Alexander and things like that. And uh, in the script, I had referred to both men as generals, and in fairness to myself, I guess, I was taking a cue from a 19th century book on the Tartar Lamb that I was citing. And I knew something wasn't sitting right with me. So I went back and researched it. And I guess in a way, it might have been all right to refer to both men as generals. But technically, the first man, I believe it's uh, Aristobulus. Uh, hopefully, I'm not butchering that. Um, I don't know if you can technically call him a general. 
He was possibly a friend of Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, but he's also described as being a friend of Alexander himself. And uh, I don't know if there's some confusion because I think he was all his his father was also named uh, Aristobulus. But anyway, he was um, he's described as accompanying or traveling with Alexander during his campaigns. And he served as kind of um, an architect and military engineer, that kind of thing. Uh, So I don't know if he necessarily bore the uh, the title of general or whatever the ancient Greek equivalent would have been. And then the other man is Nearchus, I believe. And you could call him a a general, but technically he was uh, what we would now call an admiral. He uh, led the uh, the naval forces. And an admiral is kind of like, you know, the I was about to say the the aquatic equivalent of uh, of a general. But you know what I'm trying to say. So I went back in re-recorded that bit and was a bit more specific, you know, and then re-uploaded the the episode again. So if you perhaps listened to that episode twice and noticed it was different the second time around, around no, it wasn't the Mandala effect. <laughs> it was just uh, me being picky and wanting to be um, as accurate as possible. Then concerning that Demogorgon episode... It's funny, I was kind of, you know, like half-jokingly, deprecating, self-deprecatingly thinking to myself, only I could do this. I took an episode that I was revisiting so I could correct some errors and, you know, offer some clarifications, and somehow I came out with additional errors or whatever, you know, I'm thinking, only I could do this, you know what I mean? But in this case, I'm going to go a little easy on myself and place a portion of the blame on iMovie. There's something about iMovie, especially if you're recording inside it, you know, uh, adding new audio to uh, the movie as you edit it. It becomes like this Jenga or sliding puzzle thing from hell. Like you move one thing and everything else gets like shuffled. And sometimes you're not aware of it. But you'll, if you revisit, you know, earlier parts that you've already recorded, sometimes you'll find weird spaces and things are switched around and uh, aren't sequenced properly, you know. So I I upload the thing to YouTube and I decide to watch it for quality control. I think I was actually playing Conan Exiles. (laughs) And uh, while I was playing it, I had the volume down. I decided to watch, you know, I had my phone standing up uh, on the computer desk and I decided I'll watch the uh, video, you know, for quality control. And after the the initial introduction where I state that, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump in and correct things as we go. All of a sudden, there's this weird pause that's like over a minute long. And I'm like, please, please tell me that's just some temporary hiccup or like um, maybe an ad that's loading or something. But no, I knew when I first edited it that, you know, that pause, that weird, awkward silence was not there. So I went back into iMovie. And what happened is I was recording 
The audio of my commentary where, you know, I wanted to step in and offer, you know, a correction or a clarification. And at some point, you know, recording that new bit just slid everything out of place. And I ended up with that awful space, you know, near the beginning of the episode. And I actually went in and fixed it in iMovie. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is going to take forever to re-upload. I'm going to have to edit in all the tags all over again and all that stuff. So I'm like, let me try the editor feature in YouTube's, you know, creator studio or whatever. And I, and I eventually got the hang of it enough that I was able to edit out that space. So that worked. Well, all right. So it only took me about a half an hour to get around to the news stories. All right, so uh, once again, this is obviously an unscripted episode. And so I have my notes app open here on my iPad. And over the past week, I've just kind of curated or collected news stories that caught my interest. And you guys know me, I lean politically left, but I usually try not to get too political on the show. Unless I'm dealing with something like a separation of church and state issue, or tackling some tomfoolery from the Christian right. <laughs> you know what I mean. But actually, during this whole lockdown thing, I've kind of been avoiding the news for the most part. Um, you know, maybe like a lot of people, I'm just sick of hearing about the whole COVID-19 thing. And to be honest, I've said this before on the show that uh, I used to listen to a lot of political podcasts and I used to watch... Um, nightly cable news and stuff like that. But after Donald Trump won the presidency, I just had to take a step back from politics. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't like falling to my knees in the street and crying to the heavens because Donald Trump won. I just couldn't believe it happened. I'm like, really? Really? And I don't want to uh, get sidetracked with all that. Uh, I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about what were the factors that actually allowed Donald Trump to get elected? What did the left and the right do wrong to allow this guy to fill, you know, step into that uh, power vacuum or whatever? Um, but like I said, I try not to get too political, you know, most of the time. But yeah, after Donald Trump won, I'm just like, I, I just, it was kind of like the feeling when you stuff yourself and then, like, you're so full, you almost feel sick. And if someone offers you more, you just have to, like, wave them off, you know? <laughs> I was kind of like that um, in the sense that it was bad enough, you know, that whole kind of train wreck of uh, an election or, you know, of an election season. Then it, it culminating in Donald Trump actually <laughs> being elected president. I'm like, I, I can't take it. I can't, you know, listen to, you know... Anderson Cooper 360 podcast or whatever, you know, I, I usually listen to on the way to and home from work and hear Trump, 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 Trump. you know what I mean? I just, I'm like, I'm like, I just got to take a step back and just distance myself from politics. I'll, I'll lose my mind if I just keep on hearing about President Donald Trump day in, day out, you know what I mean? And I, I said I wasn't going to get political, but maybe I am a, a little because now we have to wonder if this is going to be a repeat of the last election season. You know, 
So it seemed to me, like I said, I wasn't going to talk about this, but what went wrong the last time is that both sides tried running establishment candidates, you know, stuff suits that, you know, everyone was sick of. And, uh, you know, then there was the DNC kind of, you know, giving Bernie the shaft. Uh, and now this time around, you know, once again, I was rooting for Bernie Sanders. And, um, you know, good old Uncle Joe, Joe Biden, you know, just steps right in. I think uh, I might just want this job. And I think I spoke about this before, but you know, I actually used to really like Joe Biden, and I could be somewhat naive. You know, I didn't start to really become kind of cognizant or aware of politics in general till probably after 9-11. And I don't know if that's partly coincidence. You know, maybe I was just maturing a bit and uh, was kind of getting into politics uh, anyway or gaining an interest in politics. Or I don't know if it was like 9-11 was just like a big wake-up call that made me feel like I needed to be... More mindful about what was, you know, playing out on the world stage and politics at home and abroad, you know. Um, but in general, yeah, I used to like Joe Biden, and I think I don't know if this is a bad habit or if it's a bad thing or not. I'm, I imagine you should probably try to strike a balance between, you know, the kind of gut feeling you develop about someone as a person and also trying to objectively look at their policies and their track record and you know but I used to have a kind of habit of just going with my gut feeling about a politician you know and I used to like Joe Biden because I he just seemed like you know just like your average good-hearted guy he seemed sincere um and I used to be really moved and I guess in a way I still am by his personal story, just all the personal tragedies he's endured, you know, family members he's lost and all that. Um, but as cold as it might sound, I feel like that can only take you so far. And eventually, you know, the, the sentimentality is going to wear thin and your gaffes and blunders, um, past kind of unpopular political stances, all that stuff's going to catch up with you. You know what I mean? And now, um, on top of it, there's these allegations, very kind of Trumpian or Trump-like uh, sexual misconduct allegations being, um, you know, leveled at, uh, at Biden. And if what he's being accused of is true, I mean, it's really vile stuff. Uh, his accuser is basically, I don't even know if I should go into it. It's, it's pretty graphic, you know what I mean? But he... Supposedly, he forced himself on this woman, and uh, I guess his uh, his idea of making a pass is, you know, forcibly digitally penetrating someone against their will. So just really gross, nasty, awful stuff. Um, whether it's true or not, I, I don't know. I wasn't there, thankfully. Um, but, you know, it's it, my kind of gallows humor, you know, I just can't help but think about how the battle for the presidency is going to come down to <laughs> these two senile, demented, geriatric people, both with uh, sexual misconduct allegations against them, you know, one from either side of the political aisle, uh, 
battling it out. It's it's very odd. Rock'em Sock'em Robots Geriatric Sex Offender Edition. Uh, it's uh it's weird. Weird wild stuff. Yeah, it sucks. So I think a lot of people feel the way I do. You know, I was really pulling for Bernie Sanders. Uh, here's, and I hope, you know, I make these jokes about, you know, Trump and Biden being geriatric. And that's not me, you know, I like to think I'm not ageist. Uh, I don't care how old someone is if they're, you know, the right person for the job. And Bernie, I think Bernie's at least as old as they are, right? But he was still as sharp as a tack. Uh, I admire Bernie Sanders both for his mind and for his, uh, what I think, you know, his integrity his seeming sincere desire to want to do what's best for uh, his fellow citizens, you know what I mean? And uh, like I said, I'm someone who leans left. I'm someone who believes in a social safety net and that kind of thing. So in that sense, like Bernie Sanders seemed like the perfect uh, candidate for me. And both times, you know, kind of had the rug pulled out from under him. But the reason why I kind of digressed onto the topic of politics is because, uh, like I said, during this whole lockdown thing, I've been trying not to watch the news too much, but I did happen to have uh, the news on just kind of in the background earlier. I can't remember if it, the way these these uh, lockdown days just blur together. You know, I can't remember if it was earlier today or yesterday, but I was watching coverage of these kind of um, lockdown protests and uh, I have to admit, I'm having trouble wrap, wrapping my head around this whole thing, like lockdown protests. Uh, I think on a couple of different levels. On a really personal level, you know, I'm, I've obviously, you know, I've uh, regaled you guys with uh, stories of my, my ventures into the outside world, uh, having too much to drink or whatever. You know, I mean... Um, but I'm also, you know, I'm kind of wired to be something of an introvert. So on the one hand, I'm like, wait, you mean I get to uh, stay at home without the uh, the social stigma of being an introvert? <laughs> and, you know, and in that sense, in certain ways, my life hasn't changed that much. And I'm even like, I don't know, I don't know if I should be talking about this, but um, well, I've mentioned it on the show before that. I've basically been temporarily laid off now for like three or four weeks. Right around the time all this started, you know, it's when everyone was talking about COVID, but there was no official lockdowns or anything yet. Uh, my brother and I were supposed to start a kitchen remodel in a nearby town. Uh, we were pretty much all set to go. And then, um, you know, they decided that only uh, essential work was going to be allowed. And they kind of uh, put the kibosh temporarily on, you know, residential building projects and things like that. Um, I talked about that kind of ominous moment. It almost felt like something out of a sci-fi movie. I was on my way to the job site, traveling on the highway. And it kind of reminded me of The Walking Dead. You know, it's like, there was almost no one else on the highway and I'm almost there and I get this call from my brother and he has like a really serious tone and he's like, Phil, you should just turn around. They're, they're locking it down. They're locking it all down. Go home and file for unemployment as soon as you get home. I'm like, whoa, you know what I mean? Um, so anyway, and it's like, I really don't like talking about my personal five pro probably because I don't make that much money 
I mean, to, to keep it real, that's mostly why I don't like talking about my personal finances. And um, yeah, I don't know if I should be mentioning this, but you know, and I think a lot of people are in the same boat. Where at first, you know, before I heard about the federal assistance to, you know, state unemployment, I was like, man, I am going to be screwed because regular unemployment provided you by the state is like a fraction of what you usually make. And I wasn't making that much anyway. And on top of it, just the nature of the construction, home remodeling business, you have each week you have different hours, you know, and I get paid hourly. So you never know exactly what you're going to take home. And um, so then they added this additional 600 from the federal government, you know, to kind of help shore up uh, unemployment. And so there's some weeks with, you know, since I've been on unemployment that I've actually been making more than I, I probably would have otherwise. So in a way I'm like, wait, I get to stay at home, you know, just, I have time to think, time to work on personal projects, time to be creative. Um, and I'm sometimes making more money than I would have made when I'm physically at work. I'm like, not too shabby. In a way, you know, it sounds like too good to be true or it sounds like, you know, you're milking the government teat or whatever. But in a way, it's like, I feel like they had to implement things like this or they'd be screwed, you know. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who already worked from home or they do kind of white collar work and they could easily transition to working at home. You know what I mean? But for people who whose work requires them to be out in the world and, you know, people are doing physical labor and stuff like that. I mean, can you imagine if people were just trying to scrape by on, uh, on, you know, the scraps that regular unemployment offers you? And I mean, cause unemployment has gone through the roof. I mean, the economy would just tank. They had to do something from keeping everything from collapsing, you know? They had to at least sure up unemployment so that people would at least stand a chance of being able to pay their rent and get through, you know, uh, get through week by week, month to month until this thing is, is resolved. And, uh, you know, I think it was Ben from the Drunken Peasants who was saying, you know, when this all started, that, you know, if you're temporarily laid off because of this pandemic, don't feel ashamed. Don't feel bad. You know, you've been paying into that for years and this is what it's meant for. You know what I mean? In a sense, it's kind of like, you know, disaster relief. And so I'll say this, you know, and I this just kind of occurred to me while I was talking about all this. If part of why these people protesting the lockdowns are upset, I know there might be some people who were in a position where they couldn't file for unemployment, or maybe, you know, you're the boss and you have this job and you're watching your job go down, you know, the business you've built up, you know, go down the drain because of this, you know, I could see being angry then I could see wanting an end to the lockdown. But if you're someone who has a job that allows you to work from home, or if you're financially secure for the time being, or, you know, you're able to get by via um, 
this kind of, you know, the kind of government relief I was mentioning, this kind of, you know, beefed up version of unemployment. And it's funny, unemployment does come with a stigma. And like I said before, only one other time in my life, you know, I've been working since I got out of high school, only one, one other time in my life did I ever have to resort to unemployment. And that was during the big kind of crash or whatever of that recession of 2008. And that was very briefly. But I agree with um, Ben from the Drunken Peasants. It's it's not something you should feel ashamed of. It's not your fault that, you know, the there's a global pandemic, you know, impacting everyone. Um, and, you know, we do pay into these uh, into these government systems so that when the time comes when we we need it, you know, it's need that assistance. It's there. And so I do know that um, those increased unemployment benefits, or was it the uh, the one-time stimulus, the twelve hundred, or is it both? I don't know. But if you're above, if you're in the bracket above seventy-five thousand a year, um, I think you don't get those benefits. I think it's just for people below seventy-five thousand a year. And and I, yes, I am in that bracket. <laughs> Uh, yes, unfortunately. Um, so I don't know, like these people protesting the lockdown. That's what I'm trying to think. Are these people who are personally being financially impacted? Are these like small business owners? Are these people for some reason who can't apply for, uh, these, you know, temporary unemployment, you know, COVID unemployment benefits? Um, what's it? Why are they so angry? And I'm wondering, are these... And I don't want to be too politically divisive here, but are these kind of pro-Trump kind of Tea Party type people who, uh, who are, that just sound like Al Pacino and, and uh, I was going to say Rain Man, that was scent of a woman, right? <laughs> yeah, but I think that's the crux of it. You know, are they angry, justifiably so, because, you know, maybe their livelihoods are going down the drain because of the way they've been impacted by all this? Or are they, you know, kind of financially all right, but they're just pissed because the government ain't going to tell me to stay home. These kind of, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of kind of millennial or Generation Z kind of uh, slang that I don't really, uh, you know, like or that I find a little cringy. But there is one term I love and, and it's LARPing. And I feel like LARPing is great because it conveys a lot within, you know, just one word or term. And LARPing, you know, is uh, an acronym for live action role playing, you know, and I think it has its start in like, you know, these people who kind of uh, engage in these kind of, you know, these live versions of, of role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, where you wear costumes and go into the woods or whatever. And uh, often people use the word LARPing to refer to people who kind of melodramatically take themselves too seriously or try to pretend to be something they're not to make their lives more interesting, you know? So yeah, I don't know what's motivating these people. I mean, once again, not to sound like a broken record, I definitely have sympathy for them if they have been, you know, really impacted financially by uh, this whole COVID thing. But I don't know, you know, some of them, are they actually, they're all right financially for the time being? Uh, maybe some of them are even 
bored retirees, you know, maybe they got a fat pension or, you know, receive a uh, social security check, uh, but they just want to go out there and LARP as Braveheart and, you know, rage about how they're not going to let the government keep them at home. And if that's the case, I'm like, come on, man. You know, it's like, I can still go to the post office. I can still go, uh, you know, grocery shopping, albeit, you know, it, it is kind of a weird experience going out there where everyone's wearing the masks and, you know, the uh, parts of the supermarket are roped off and everything. But, you know, you can, you can still do that. You can still have gatherings, uh, you know, visit friends and have, was it? You're not supposed to have any gatherings more than 10 people at a time, but you know you could probably still have small little uh, parties or whatever, or little gatherings. Um, I mean, what you miss going out to, you know, physically going out to see a movie or going out to a restaurant, to be honest, like I actually couldn't give a shit about that stuff. So I'm like, wait, I can still have food delivered to me. Uh, I can still sit at home and watch movies in the comfort of my own my own home or whatever, you know, and, uh, and, and my Calvin Klein boxer briefs or whatever they are, <laughs> uh, too much information, but you know, I'm like, who cares? Who cares, man? You know, so are these people who are kind of LARPing like, uh, they're the brave militia and this is a big version of Ruby Ridge or something, you know, out of my cold dead hand, you know, whatever. It's like, I don't know. Are these people who are so conspiratorial that maybe they doubt the very existence of the virus and they think this is finally, you know, the globalists, the elites, or just, you know, our own corrupt government finally, you know, making the move to uh, you know, subjugate us all and send us all to FEMA camps or whatever, you know? I don't know. But it's weird because you definitely see some cognitive dissonance because you'll see these people violently pro and I don't mean violently physically. I don't think in fairness to them, I don't think I haven't heard of too many instances of this really getting physical, you know, but you know, I mean, the people really passionately protesting the lockdown and yet many of them are still wearing masks and maybe gloves, you know? So it's like, you seem to be acknowledging that the virus is an actual threat, or maybe you have enough doubts that you realize, you know, it's best to be smart and, you know, take precautions. And yet you're protesting this, uh, the lockdown or whatever you call it, these kind of precautionary measures, which could help protect you, yourself, your loved ones, your neighbors. You know, I mean, and once again, despite the fact that you realize there's enough of a threat that you should be wearing a mask you're still trying to force the government's hand to lift these precautionary measures, which could make the situation a whole lot worse, you know? And I mentioned the protesters wearing masks, but there's also, you know, abundance of them who aren't wearing masks or gloves or whatever, and which seems so kind of selfish and myopic to me, because it's like, okay, even if you don't care about your own health, you do realize that you could be putting other people, including your own loved ones at risk. You know what I mean? And the mask isn't just to protect you. It's to protect other people from, you know, your spittle and your nasal, nasal discharge or whatever, you know? Um, it's like, come on, man. And it's funny, I've been rambling about this, but it was actually just a short little 
snippet I saw that made me want to talk about all this. So I was walking by the TV and I see this guy. He looks like a looks like a middle-aged guy being interviewed. I don't know, he might have been like 40s, 50s. Um, no mask or anything like that. And uh, he's being interviewed by a reporter and he's kind of defiantly saying that his health and whether or not he gets sick is in God's hands. And that pisses me off so much. And once again, it just seems so kind of selfish or whatever. Um, so I think LARPing might come in handy again. So this guy's LARPing like someone who's, you know, traveling under, under the aegis of his own personal creator God or whatever, who thinks he's so special that God will shield him from the sickness or whatever, you know, and to hell with everyone else. Um, it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Well, actually, I don't get it. But you have the need to believe in a higher power, uh, you know, to, I don't know, it gives you a sense of comfort or a sense of purpose or help, helps you deal with uh, the stark reality of your own, you know, inevitable mortality or what, whatever it is. You got a need to believe in some higher power. It's like, are, are you really going to put other human beings' lives their well physical well-being or whatever at risk and for what so you can smugly walk around proclaiming how you're under sky daddy special protection or whatever to put it crudely and i'm not trying to disparage all religious people because i know there are plenty of rational religious people who you know it's probably some compartmentalizing going on there but they're rational in the sense that you know, th they still recognize that there are serious medical threats in this world and medical, real medical concerns. And there's even a lot of religious, you know, um, doctors and healthcare professionals. So you can be Christian or you can be religious and still realize that we need to protect ourselves from, you know, contagions. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I think there's, what, been over 60,000 COVID-19 deaths here in the States. And I think one person put it kind of powerfully that we've now lost more people to COVID than we did, you know, in the Vietnam War. And, I mean, this guy, what would he say to all those people who've died? What would he say to their loved ones? You know, was were they not good enough to merit God's protection? You know what I mean? So anyways, now it's uh, 53 minutes in. Time to finally move on. To, didn't I say that like 20 minutes ago? I was moving on to the news stories. So this is what I posted to the Weekend Out Facebook page. And it's from the uh, Friendly Atheist. And it's actually by Hemant Mehta himself. And it's entitled, E.W. Jackson. Atheists reject a god they can't see. So why do they fear a virus? Galaxy brain. And, so, and this is dated April 28th. During a Facebook live stream on Sunday, right-wing radio host and former candidate for lieutenant governor of Virginia, E.W. Jackson, mocked atheists for rejecting God because they can't see him, while believing in a virus they also can't see. And uh, let's see, there's some uh, an embedded video here. And this has just got to go through my microphone, so it's got probably got to sound kind of tinny. like this to me, uh, and, and, you know, usually in comments after I put out some live stream event or something like that, here's what they'll say. You know, you got fools who 
uh, uh, believe that some imaginary man in the sky that they can't see is going to protect them. And yet, they'll crawl off into a corner cringing over a virus that they can't see. Got him. At least that's what he's thinking. But <laughs> I don't want to steal anyone else's thunder, but I think a few different people commented on that post on the Weekend Out uh, Facebook page. And uh, I think one person just simply wrote microscopes or something like that. Yes, yes, we can actually see a virus <laughs> using a microscope. And God, not so much. But here's another one from the Friendly Atheist. And this is actually dated to the same day, April 28th. Why did my voice just get really low right then? It was like the opposite of the Peter Brady effect. Uh, let's let's see. Uh, and this one's entitled Self-Described Prophet. Even when my predictions are wrong, they're still true. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson, a self-described prophet, who said earlier this month that Dr. Anthony Fauci was a big rat sent by Satan to thwart Donald Trump, made a remarkable comment during a live stream Sunday. He explained that he once got a sign from God that a certain businessman would become a millionaire. Instead, the man went bankrupt. What does that mean? It means the prophecy was true. And then I actually read through this earlier. It just goes on kind of elaborating on how this guy uh, attempts to twist things in his favor, you know. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll read a little more. Years ago, I prophesied to a man in a meeting. I got his name. The Lord showed me a large business. He was going to become a, a multi-millionaire. I mean, tremendous. I mean, it was probably like the greatest prosperity, unintelligible in brackets, I ever gave. I mean, I could have preached with the best of them. This came on me. He called the office five days later and said, You're a false prophet. My company just went bankrupt. Now listen to what I've been teaching you today by the word of God. I said, Brother, I actually believe now, after what you've told me, that that was the word of the Lord. I measure, I measure prophetic accuracy on how much warfare follows it. And so it continues, I said, I'm now convinced that is the word of the Lord, because now it's getting tested. Now God is going to strip you down and humble you. Was God the Iron Sheik? What's uh, <laughs> wrong me? Uh, anyway, now God is going to strip you down and humble you, and really see where your heart's at. Can you really steward those millions? So basically he's saying, if his prophecy comes to pass, it's true. And if it doesn't come to pass, it's also true. So he wins either way. Huh, that's convenient. And I'm trying to see what other stories in my notes here I want to tackle. There's one that maybe, uh, you know, it merits at least reading the, t the title, but uh, it might be just like too depressing to even go into, you know. It says, a, a Christian school hired an alleged sex predator without telling anyone. Yeah, that's, I mean, is anyone surprised by that? And here's another one that's, you know, really depressing. But I feel like I owe it to the person at the center of the story to at least, you know, mention uh, what's happening to them. I, I don't know the person personally, but I admire what they're trying to do. So this one's also dated to April 28th, and it's entitled, Nigerian Police Arrest Humanist Leader Mubarak Bala for Alleged Blasphemy. Earlier today, Nigerian police arrested Mubarak Bala, president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria, for quote-unquote blasphemy after he allegedly posted criticism of Islam on his Facebook page.
This is the same Bala who was placed in a mental hospital in 2014 for the quote-unquote crime of being an atheist. I think I remember that story. He was later released, but that didn't stop the threats on his life. Today's arrest apparently stems from a petition sent to local police saying that Bala characterized the Prophet Muhammad PB&J be upon him as a terrorist. We therefore humbly lodge this complaint to you with the hope that said Mubarak Bala will be brought to will be brought to book so that he will know and understand that Nigeria is not a lawless society. Let me read that again. Mubarak Bala will brought to book. Will br- this got I don't know if there's a typo in there or if I'm missing something. Mubarak Bala will brought to book so that he will know and understand that Nigeria is not a lawless society. And that's the end of that quote. And so um, I believe this one was written by, yeah, it's written, written by Hemant Mehta too. So this is his uh, commentary. Let's see. To be clear, Nigeria's constitution guarantees freedom of religion and expression. His comments didn't block anyone from practicing or expressing their faith. The problem is that Nigeria doesn't even care about its own constitution in these cases. Despite promoting religious freedom, the constitution also allows Nigerian states to create Sharia courts. Under Sharia law, blasphemy is punishable by death. And then it goes on to say that the person who chairs the board of trustees for the Humanist Association of Nigeria said he's worried about what could happen to Bala. All of us at the Humanist Association of Nigeria are deeply worried by the arrest and detention of our president, Mubarak Bala. Mubarak Bala will likely be handed over to the Kano State Police Command that will prosecute him for blasphemy, a crime that carries a death sentence under Sharia law. The Center for Inquiry, which runs an international assistance program for activists called Secular Rescue, released this statement. And the statement in full looks rather long, but there is a tweet here. The Center for Inquiry and its program to protect and lend assistance to atheist activists around the world, Secular Rescue, strongly condemn the arrest today of Mubarak Bala, president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria. He is currently being detained at the Gabasawa. I don't know. I hope I didn't. This is a serious topic. I I hope I didn't butcher that, though. Police station in Kaduna, Nigeria, after he was taken into custody at his home. Um, Yeah, so just really horrible and really concerning stuff. Oh, and I actually really like this part of the statement. The Center for Inquiry supports and defends freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom to criticize religion and dogma, and freedom of religious choice, including the choice not to be religious. We condemn in the strongest possible terms the arrest of Mubarak Bala and call for his immediate release. People deserve protection, not beliefs. Ideas don't need rights. People do. So that's awesome. I actually have the chills. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Okay, so I've been going at this for a while. There is one last thing I want to cover. And so I remember in the early days of the show, I used to uh, cover Bill Maher segments on the show, you know, from Real Time with Bill Maher all the time. I kind of fell out of habit. Uh, at, At one point, the show went on hiatus or whatever, and then I just for some reason, fell out of the habit of uh, watching it. 
But I happened to uh, to find this clip on YouTube, and I know I said, you know, I'm trying to reassure you guys, I'm not trying to push veganism on you. But I thought this was interesting, because here was Bill Maher, someone I used to cover on the show all the time, and he happened to be expressing his thoughts on the, you know, the Wuhan, is that it? Uh, the Chinese wet markets and the zoonotic origins of, you know, so many of our illnesses. And so I figured I'd just play it and, you know, you guys can decide for yourselves what you think of what he has to say. All right, here it is. Stop trying to get me to watch Tiger King. It's not going to happen. I already have to watch one bottle blonde from reality TV. And the other reason I'm not watching Tiger King while sequestering, because torturing animals is what got us into this mess. That's the lesson we keep refusing to learn, that you can't trash the environment, including animals, and not have it come back and kill you. Two weeks ago, I called out China for reopening their wet markets, and miraculously, people from both sides of the aisle reached out to say, good for you for saying that. Well, here's another hot take that may not be as popular. America's factory farming is just as despicable as a wet market and just as problematic for our health. Factory farms have a lot more lobbyists, but ecological time bombs tick the same. Americans should not get too high and mighty about wet markets while we are doing this. Most, if not all, infectious diseases are zoonotic, meaning they start in animals and jump to humans. AIDS likely came from primates. Someone butchered a monkey or fucked one or something they shouldn't have been doing with a monkey. Mad cow came from cattle, eating cattle, which is like feeding a chicken an omelet. Just two weeks ago, a fatal strain of bird flu was confirmed in a commercial turkey flock in South Carolina. Now, to thwart the coronavirus, we've been told to create distance, avoid others who are sick, lower stress, and exercise. Are you surprised that diseases flourish among animals when they're forced to live in conditions that are the complete opposite of all of that? They're on top of each other, they can't move, they're stressed out. I've seen airports treat luggage better than we treat animals. Egg-laying hens are starved and given no water for weeks to shock their bodies into molting. Beaks of chickens are removed. I could go on. Have you ever driven by a high-density feedlot? Yeesh. To get relief from the stench, you have to stick your nose in an egg salad sandwich. If you think the market in Wuhan is gross, you should visit one of our giant poultry processing factories. But of course you can't, because we have ag-gag laws that make it a crime to report the crime. And it is a crime of animal abuse that goes on in our food industry. You're worried that the mailman has coronavirus? 80% of pigs have pneumonia when they're slaughtered because we make them live in conditions that would make a zombie vomit. And then, so they don't die before we kill them, pump them full of antibiotics that in turn get passed on to humans that in turn leads to antibiotic-resistant diseases, that in turn leads to us dying from ever-evolving contagions. It's six degrees of tainted bacon. We're on the cusp of returning to a pre-antibiotic era where strep throat was a death sentence. 
Let me put it as basically as I can. If we keep producing food the way we do, you're going to get sick with something medicine cannot fix. You don't have to care for the sake of the animals. I wouldn't want to mess with anyone's reputation as a heartless asshole. But do it because animal cruelty leads to human catastrophe. Do it because barbecue is why you've been masturbating for a month. And get the fuck away from me with Tiger King. I don't care that he sees the light at the end. So did Darth Vader. There's no such thing as keeping a wild animal pent up, but treating them well. Just as Siegfried and what remains of Roy. Joe Exotic is in prison partly for killing five endangered tigers, which are endangered because of people like him. I don't get why the woke left loves this show so much and isn't on this guy like pink sequins. People should take their meandering outrage and focus it on this issue. You keep animals in cages, be they tigers or turkeys, and look who winds up being the prisoner. And I know I said I'd let you guys make up your own minds, and of course you can and will, uh, but I just wanted to say upon listening to that back, I thought that was awesome. I thought that was uh, pretty damn good. Um, and oh yeah, so I was going to say the Tiger King thing. Ever since I was a kid, I had this weird rebellious anti-bandwagon uh, kind of thing going on. Whenever I see everyone saying how great something is and hopping on the bandwagon, I automatically, maybe it's like a, a juvenile reflex or something, you know, but I, I always kind of buck the trend or whatever. So, no, I haven't seen The Tiger King. Uh, I, I probably won't bother watching it or whatever. I remember, oh, it's funny, because I'm a Drunken Peasants fan, and they used to play clips of that guy back in the day. And so I've seen, I've already seen clips of the quote-unquote Tiger King, Joe Exotic or whatever he was. And I thought he was no better than any of the other kind of goofy characters, you know, that they uh, lampooned and, you know, made fun of on the show. I, I have no desire to watch a whole series based on that guy. But with that being said, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. As always, thanks for listening, everyone. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. If you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.